Well, uh, this morning I want to bring a message really of two halves. And uh, the, the first half is a warning. It's, uh, it's an exhortation, a kind of urging to each of us really to fall more in love with Jesus. That's the kind of outcome I want of, the, uh, of, this, of this warning. Um, and the second half of the message is going to be a message of hope. And uh, uh, it's really because there's going to be a, a ray of light, really, for any of us who feel that we could have done better at any point in our lives um, up to this point. Um, and, uh, and who maybe who, particularly to those who wonder whether the errors or misjudgments or decisions they've made in the past actually kind of discount them in some way. And I, I believe what I've got is a message of, of hope for, for people like that. And so uh, the two halves really focus on two different people. The two people are called Demas and Mark. And uh, we come across them uh, at the end of Paul's final letter that he writes, or at least the final letter that we've got contained in Scripture, and that's the letter of 2 Timothy. Um, and he, Paul wrote this to his protege, Timothy, to encourage him to kind of stand firm and, and continue in the way he was going um, in about AD 64. So that's the kind of time frame. And uh, he wrote it, Paul wrote it while he was in prison, awaiting his execution and we know he was executed under the reign of or during the reign of Nero uh, who is emperor of Rome so uh, about AD 64 and so I mean this is an incredible letter and when you read it and I'd encourage you to do it it's only four chapters long but read it with the view of this is Paul at the end of his life and he knows it's at the end of his life and then read it and it's phenomenal what he what he says in there so anyway um, we're going to look at these two characters Demas and Mark and I'm going to ask us three questions the first question is who were who were they so I'll give you a bit of background secondly what happened to them why am I even speaking about them? Um, and thirdly, what lessons are there for us from each of their lives? And that's kind of the two halves. And then I'll, I'll wrap up the, the sermon with a, with a conclusion. So that's kind of where we're heading this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, I'd lo- love it if you could turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, 2 Timothy is towards the end of your Bibles. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Um, and if you're still in John, then you haven't gone far enough. So it's kind of in between those two. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read about 10 verses, uh, but we're actually only going to talk about two sentences. So I hope that's okay with you. So 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. By that he means his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark, not literally, I think he just means collecting him and bring him along. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. 
The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. And then he rounds off the whole letter with, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, we love it when you speak to us. You've talked to us this morning about the fact that your love never runs out on us, about the fact that we have freedom in you. What better place then is there to come and sit and look at your word together, knowing who we are in you. And Father, I pray that you would speak to each of us this morning, that as we look at these two fascinating characters, Demas and Mark, you would teach us something from their lives and that you would stir us to live lives which follow you more closely. So be with us, we pray. Speak to each of us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. That's what Paul writes about him. So who was Demas? Well, he's mentioned on just two other occasions in the whole of the Bible. And uh, this is at the end of two other letters that Paul wrote. So we're going to look at those. Uh, If you turn back a few pages to Colossians. We read that um, in verse 14 of Colossians, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. So that's, that's one of the other mentions of Demas. Okay? He gets named in this bit of Colossians. And, uh, and the other mention is in Philemon, which is just after 2 Timothy. And uh, the, the verse there, verses 23 and 24 of Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, there he is, Luke, my fellow workers. And, uh, and actually, if you read a bit more in that Colossians passage, you'll read that there's a whole group of people who are named. So you hear about Tychicus, who's like the postman who takes the letters around with him uh, from Paul to the churches. There's Anisimus, and then the other characters we read about, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke. They're all there. Now, I think Colossians and Philemon were written together, written at the same time by Paul, when he was in one of his imprisonments. And what we get the picture of is, is Paul writing, and with him are this group of people, this group of men who he'd classes as his fellow workers, That's how he describes them. And Demas is one of those. Demas is kind of right in there with Paul's central team, core team, if you like. It's part of the inner circle. And so as Paul writes to the the church in Colossae and to his friend Philemon, who is part of the church there, he says, Demas is with me. So that's who Demas was, one of Paul's inner circle. So what happened then? Because when we read about him in 2 Timothy, we read that he's deserted me having loved the present world. Well, we don't know for sure. Okay, um, I could stop the sermon there, but that would kind of be quite short and you'd feel shortchanged. So I'll carry on. Um, the, the time period between Colossians Philemon being written and 2 Timothy being written is probably two to four years. So not very long. And we, so what we see is on, in the one set of letters, Demas is there as part of the inner circle, working alongside Paul. And just a few years later, having loved this present world, he has deserted Paul. 
That's why I think he's a warning to us. I think he's a warning that actually the lure of the world is very strong. And the love of the world is so kind of insidious and creeping that it grips you and gets you before you know it. And Demas provides us with a warning about that. And this is real stuff. I mean, all of us will have heard of church leaders who failed in some way, moral failure or whatever. Public figures who fall. When I was at university, I was part of the, I studied at Warwick and I was part of the Christian Union there. And it was about 200, 250 people strong. And uh, there was an executive committee who kind of ran the affairs of the, of the, of the CU. And they were kind of overseen by UCCF, who were the University and Colleges Christian Fellowship. And uh, what UCSCF did was provide training for those who were in leadership within the Christian Union. And, uh, and so this executive committee was made up of about six or eight people, and uh, pe- people had various roles on it. And it was led by the CU president. And the, the, each of these committee members was selected by their peers. So they were kind of uh, us- heavily influenced by the previous year's committee, but kind of by, approved by the wider student Christian body. And so they were kind of, I guess, picked out as people who had potential leadership. You would expect, you know, in the kind of minds of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, these are people who are going on with God, walking with God, and so on. That's kind of the, the feel for those who were selected, if you like, to do this kind of leadership role. And UCCF had this statistic at the time where I was, when I was studying, which is a while ago now. And the st- statistic was this, that two years after leaving university, only one third, one third, one in three of CU presidents were still walking with God still involved in local church. These were young men and women who were kind of selected by their peers as having some sort of potential going on with God. And yet two years after graduating, they were nowhere with God. That was the statistic. Now that shocked me at the time. But I think what it does is illustrate how however much you are running after God, that is great. But the world is still there on your doorstep. And we have to guard our hearts if we're not going to be turned aside by that. And one of the saddest things for me is seeing people kind of diverted from their faith, drift away from it. And Paul writes about this to the church in Galatia. He writes, you were running well. Who cut in on you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is real. This is real because we have an enemy out there who would seek to derail us, to sidetrack us, to take (laughs) us off somewhere where we don't want to be going. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. It's a warning to us. Sorry if this is a bit heavy, but it's what the Bible says. So what lessons then can we learn from this little snippet of Demas. Well, I think there's, there's two things. Primarily, it's a, it's a story of a warning to us about the temptation and the lure of the world. But I think what it also says to us is that we need to recognize what love of the world looks like. Because I don't think for a second that Demas woke up one morning and go, oh, I've had enough of this church thing. I'm going to start loving the world. I don't think it happened like that. I don't think it happens for any of us like that. 
I think it's that creep. And suddenly, before you know it, you're somewhere where you didn't want to be. And so I think it's about recognizing what love of the world looks like. And John, I think, is really helpful in this. So again, if you've got your Bibles and want to turn to 1 John chapter 2. And in verses 15 through 17, he talks about the love of the world and he starts off with a command. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that kind of makes sense. You can't love two things. And so he, he gives us this command. But then he goes on to describe what this love of the world actually looks like. So in verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So three things. He says it's the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh, which I think we can often say, well, that's kind of sexual temptation, sexual lusting of the flesh. Well, yeah, it is. But actually, it's much broader than that as well in this context. It's about the satisfying of fleshly physical appetites. So it could be greed or gluttony that satisfies a craving of the flesh. It could be sexual temptation, sexual fulfillment, as we've said. It could be those, but it's, it's where we're, we're wanting to satisfy the natural, if you like, desires, the human desires, and we're lusting after things. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is lust of the eyes. And again, we relate this, and certainly guys particularly relate this uh, very easily to kind of lusting after uh, someone of the opposite sex and that kind of sexual sexual lusting. But again, it's more than that as well. There's a covetousness to it that you can see something and want it because your eyes desire it. It's a seeing and desiring, wanting, lust of the eyes. And the third aspect is the boastful pride of life. That's what the NASB translation says. I think um, the ESV says pride in possessions. And the NIV says boasting of what he has and does, which I think actually is probably the most helpful of those. But this is the idea of puffing up oneself because you have stuff. You've accumulated things and therefore look at me. There's this boasting about it, this puffing up. And so these three things, this kind of satisfying of fleshly appetites, this lusting after seeing things and and wanting it, and then this gathering up, this accumulation, this kind of materialistic wanting more, are all aspects of the love of the world. Now we're coming into a season of advertising, aren't we, where actually, what do adverts do? I think they play on all three of those things. I see it with my kids when we watch a bit of telly in the morning and it's kids TV and there's an advert. Oh, I want that. Oh, yeah. For Christmas. Next advert. Oh, I want that. I want, you know, whatever it is. I mean, everything. Soon they're going to invent, I reckon, this little app that you can just kind of click on buy all for the previous series of adverts and they just get delivered to your house. But this Friday is Black Friday. What's that all about? That's about, oh, I want that, and I want it as cheap as I can get it, and I want it now. And there's some good deals. But, (laughs) but, but, what is really going on there? 
It's this lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, a pride in possessions. That could be part of it. So just watch your heart. Watch your heart. I'm not don't saying don't you know don't don't boycott Black Friday. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is just watch out for it. Back in 2000, um, Audi launched this car. There's a picture of it, and uh, it's called the Audi TT. And uh, I know nothing about cars other than that you know they should have four wheels and that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm not really a big fan of cars at all. I'm not at all bothered about them. However. Back in 2000, I was just starting my first job and I was learning to drive. And I saw some of these around and I thought, oh, they're quite nice. And uh, so uh, I duly passed my test and we had our little Metro, um, which actually got stolen from outside Trevor and Wendy's house. But let's not talk about that. Um, and, uh, um, and so we needed, a, we needed a new car. Sorry. A sign and needed an Audi TT. So, you know, I looked into it and, you know, true enough, um, it was well beyond our price bracket, and uh, we bought something significantly cheaper. I think it was a Punto, actually. Um, and uh, I was very happy with it. it. Did the same job, in fact, as that would have. Um, but and you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. That I'm not saying it's wrong to have an expensive car. It's not wrong to have a car that you actually like and enjoy driving. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it because what I found myself thinking was this. Well, that's an expensive car. But if I didn't give anything to the church, then maybe, maybe I could get something slightly better than a Punto. Probably not that. My giving wasn't that standard. But nonetheless, (laughs) there was still that thought there. And actually, in that moment, what's going on? It's the kind of lure of the love of the world. Essentially, that's what was going on in me. This idea that if I substitute that, and who will know, let's face it, what I give or what I don't give, what my income is, and I could get that, surely that would be okay. And that's how it starts, I think. The love of the world is actually a love of things which are passing away. And that's what John goes on to talk about in verse 17. He says, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. I don't know whether there'll be Audi TTs in heaven. If there is, maybe I'll get one. (laughs) I don't know. But it's (laughs) it's a temporary passing pleasure. And the love of the world is just there around the corner. So we need to recognize it for what it is and recognize our own thought processes. And when we're bombarded, as we will be over the next six weeks, with the adverts which tell us we need this for fulfillment, then we need to watch what's going on. So we need to recognize love of the world. That's the first thing that Demas teaches us. The second thing is that he teaches us that we need to look at the right things. And Rob talked about this so brilliantly last week. I would recommend that if you didn't listen to his talk about the priority of heaven on earth, this kind of that we, we should have our treasure in heaven, not on earth. Then I would please listen to it because he unpacks this in, in more detail. But the call for us is to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The call for us is that we're to seek first his kingdom. Everything else follows. Seek first his kingdom. The writer to Hebrews phrases it as laying aside every encumbrance and sin and run 
fixing your eyes on Jesus. The world pales away when you fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what he's saying. In Colossians, Paul says, set your minds on things which are above, not on earthly things. He also tells Timothy in his previous letter not to fix his hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You see, again and again and again, the writers to these Christians, these early Christians in these early churches, say the same thing. The world is not worth it. The only thing that's worth it is Jesus, but you have to lay the other stuff aside. You have to deliberately think about other things because the world is all around you. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. And so even in that passage that we started off reading, if you look back at verses six to eight, the way Paul describes the way he's run the race, fought the fight, etc., uh, etc., et he then says, in the future is laid up for me, notice in future, so it's treasures in heaven, um, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. That's what we're to love. Not the world. Demas loved the world. The contrast two verses later, he loved the world and deserted Paul. But we're to love his appearing and fix our eyes on heaven. So Demas, a man who loved the world and having loved the world, deserted Paul, left that inner circle, left the ministry, if you like, and deserted, fled, went to Thessalonica, cosmopolitan city where there was lots of fun to be had. That's where he went. That's not what we're to do. That's not what we're to do. And so he serves as a warning for us. So that's the first, the first person is Demas. The second person that I want to look at is Mark. So who is Mark? Well, we meet him maybe first, the time we meet him, but maybe he appeared earlier. That's a bit cryptic. Talk to me over coffee. Um, but the first time he's named is in Acts 12, verse 12, where we meet Mark, who is also called John. So when you go away and do a bit of detective work, just to check that I've been telling you what's actually in the Bible, um, you will sometimes see him referred to as John and sometimes Mark and sometimes Mark, who's also called John. OK, so look out for that. But his mother was called Mary. And she was the one whose church, where the church met in her house in those early days in Jerusalem. And so they met there to pray. And you know, when Peter's released from prison, he comes knocking on the door. It's Mary's house. And, uh, and Mark is, is her son. And he's also Barnabas's cousin. Bit of a family affair. Okay. So Mark essentially was a young man who was part of the early church in Jerusalem. That's what we know about him. So what happened? Well, um, if you turn to Acts chapter 13. And I'll just give you a very kind of brief overview because this is this is potentially quite a long story, but I'll I'll keep it short. So Barnabas and Saul visit Jerusalem from where they're based in Antioch. And when they go back to Antioch, they take John Mark, that's how I'm going to refer to him, John Mark, with them. And then at the start of chapter 13 of Acts, we see that the uh, prophets and teachers in Antioch get together and they're praying and they set aside 
Barnabas and Saul, because Paul was called Saul at this point, um, and send them away on, to, on a mission. So they go off in verse 4 of chapter uh, 13, and we read, So they're sent out by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and a map will appear now, and they sail to Cyprus. Um, and when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God, and they also had John, or John Mark, as their helper. So here we've got a map of the, the uh, eastern Mediterranean, and uh, on the next map, we'll kind of zoom in, and uh, we've got here uh, Jerusalem down at the bottom there on the right-hand side. We've got Antioch, which is up in uh, Syria, or modern-day Syria, uh, which is where they were, were based. So they set sail from there across to Cyprus, to Salamis. They travelled overland to Paphos, um, which some of you may have been on holiday to. And, uh, and then they go from there back onto the continent. They go up to Perga, which is in Pamphylia. Okay, so that's the kind of the route of the, that first missionary journey. And it continues after that. So, um, so they take John Mark with them as their helper. That's what it says in, in verse 5. So they, they travel across there. Now, when they get to Perga, John Mark decides he's had enough and he returns to Jerusalem. So we read in verse 13 of Acts 13. Now Paul and his companions put up to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Chapter 13 and 14 continue the story with Barnabas and Saul going off around, as you can see there on the little red lines, um, and they finish their missionary journey and they go back to Antioch. So this raises the question, why did Mark desert them? Well, for the second time today, we don't know. Okay. However, there are, I think, a few options, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through them with you. Um, but let's remember this is a young man who kind of put his hand up and said, I'll go on this mission trip. You know, that is a courageous step to go in these sorts of conditions to do that. And partway in through that journey, he bailed out. He went home. So maybe it was he was just too young. Maybe he was too immature, couldn't kind of handle it. Maybe he was ill-prepared for the journeying. Maybe he lived all his life in Jerusalem, a city life, you know, all the modern comforts of, of first century Jerusalem. And traveling across the sea in a boat to Cyprus, where they were kind of, you know, wasn't very well developed and all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe he just didn't like it, didn't get on with it. Maybe he was seasick. Maybe he got ill. There's a lot of illness in these parts, particularly when you get back onto the, the mainland. Maybe it was unsafe. We read Paul writes crazy things in his letters about being in danger from, from hunger and storms and the sea and bandits and all sorts of things. It was pretty inhospitable terrain where they were traveling. So maybe he just wasn't ready for it. Maybe it was not so much that he was kind of immature or too young, but that he was maybe spiritually immature. If you read the account in Acts 13, there's some kind of crazy stuff happens. So they land on Cyprus, and by the time they get across to Paphos, they encounter this false prophet or magician called Elimas, who opposes them. And I, wonder what, I wonder what opposition looks like when you're a, a magician. I think it's going to be pretty heavy stuff. And the outcome is, 
that Paul looks at him and strikes him blind so that he can't oppose them anymore. And if you're a young man on your first missions trip, that's kind of quite a lot to get your head around what's going on. So maybe, maybe he just didn't get it, wasn't ready for that moment. I don't know. Maybe it was that he had theological differences. You see, Mark was a Jewish Christian. And yet when they're on Paphos, we see the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, that is not a Jewish name. OK, that is a Roman name. Sergius Paulus become a Christian. And maybe he just didn't get how Gentiles could just become Christians like that. We know that a couple of chapters later, we have the Council of Jerusalem where they deal with this issue of does everyone need to be circumcised before they can kind of come into the into the Christian family, if you like. So maybe he just hadn't resolved that. I mean, none of them really had resolved that at this stage. It was an ongoing issue. So maybe he just had this kind of theological differences with what was going on and felt, I can't really be part of this anymore. Or maybe it was personality differences. Remember that, that Barnabas was his cousin. And the, the whole trip starts off with set apart Barnabas and Saul. Note Barnabas and Saul. A few verses later, Luke's narrative changes and it becomes from then on Paul and Barnabas. Paul takes over as the senior partner very quickly. Maybe he didn't like that. Barnabas was his cousin. You know, maybe he didn't like the way that kind of it seemed like Paul was kind of shuffling in and, and taking over. Maybe. They're all kind of guesses. We don't know. Could have been any number of those. It could have been all of those. It could have been none of those. But what we do know is that he was on the trip and then he felt he couldn't be on the trip anymore and he went home. So anyway, the trip carries on and uh, Paul and Barnabas get back to um, Antioch. And a bit of the time later, they go down for the Council of Jerusalem. And after that, they go off on another trip. And this is the way it works. Um, So in verse 37, 36 of chapter 15, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city. So that's revisiting all of these. Every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they kind of want to go back and revisit everyone. Barnabas says, great idea. Tell you what, Paul, verse 37, let's take along John called Mark. And Paul says, verse 38, no. Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There's such a sharp disagreement between these two guys because Paul believes that Barnabas, no, Barnabas believes that Mark should go with them and Paul believes that he shouldn't. And so they go their separate ways. Barnabas grabs Mark and they go back to Cyprus. Paul heads off with another guy called Silas. So although we don't know the reason for Mark to bail out on this trip back in chapter 13, we do know this. Paul thought that that reason was significant enough to not take Mark with him again, not to risk it. And we also know that Barnabas thought that the reason was not significant enough 
to take him along with him. And then we hear nothing of John Mark for about 14 years. And then those verses we read earlier, Philemon, did you notice that Mark was in that list of fellow workers? I'll read it to you again. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So 14 years later, he's part of Paul's inner circle again. He's not coming with me on that trip. We're not going to risk it. He deserted us before. 14 years later, Mark's with me. He's a fellow worker. Love it. Colossians chapter 4. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark. And also Jesus, who's called Justus. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, i.e. from a Jewish background. And they have proven to be an encouragement to me. Whoa. Mark deserts them in Pamphylia. 14 years later, he has become a proven encouragement to Paul. This is why I think the story of Mark gives us hope. And there are lessons we can learn from him. So primarily, it's that there's hope for all of us. Even if we've messed up, there can be a way back. That's what Mark's story says, surely. Yeah, I'll go with you on the trip. I oh, know, second thoughts, I'll go home. But there's always, always potential for a way back. A few years ago, I went through a period of a couple of years where I didn't preach or teach in the church. Not here, it was in our previous church. And um, that was hard. That was hard because I felt that God had put that in me to do. I felt that that's what I was called to. You may currently be disagreeing with that. What's he on about? Anyway, I still feel it. Um, But I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because there were some other things in my life that needed sorting out that took priority. It's kind of like I was on on that first missions trip and yet some stuff cropped up that meant I had to return home and sort it out. Some aspects of my life which needed some attention. It wasn't a kind of Demas falling in love with the world type thing. It was just there were areas of life which needed my priority, my attention, my focus for a time being. And so my story really is that actually... It's when sometimes you're taken out of the action and put in a place where it's just you and God in that hidden place where he does some of his biggest work. That's where the restoration happens. For Mark, he needed to leave this trip for whatever reason. And whatever the reason was, we know Paul wasn't happy about it. But actually, actually, It's in that place that he was then restored. And it may be 
for you. That there are, you, you've kind of come to a point and you made a choice. And maybe you made the wrong choice. Maybe you made the right choice because you needed to focus on other stuff. I don't know. I'm not saying whether Mark's choice here was right or wrong. I don't know that. What I do know is he made a choice to leave that trip. And maybe you're in that position and you feel like your bridges have now been burnt. That was it. That was the chance. I got on the team. I went on the trip and actually had to leave. You were on the front line and now you think, well, I'm probably not going to be. But Mark's story gives us hope. Mark's story says actually that failure or a need to leave doesn't necessarily mean it's the end. Restoration is possible. And the fact that years later, Paul can write, pick up Mark and bring him to me. Why? He's useful to me for service. What a contrast. What a contrast. Or bring him along. He is an encouragement to me. In fact, this is how restored Mark gets. He writes a chunk of the Bible. We call it Mark. (laughs) Now that isn't someone who just kind of drops off the radar because he couldn't handle an overseas trip or something. So why, why, why have we looked at this this morning? Well, I think that really overarching all of this is that there's a need for grace, a need for grace. And I think Demas tells us that actually, if we're not going to go down the route he went down, we're going to heed that warning that the lure of the world, the attraction of the world, the love of the world is a strong thing. Then Demas says to us, We need to be strong in grace. That's what Paul writes earlier in in 2 Timothy. He writes, we've got to be strong in grace. Why? Because it's grace that brings the focus to then the world. (coughs) Otherwise, the world looks attractive. And I think what Demas says to us is that however close you are to the action, you need to be closer to Jesus. We need to be strong in grace. We need to focus our eyes on him. Mark tells us about grace as well. He says that grace restores us. That's the message of Mark's life, I think. Gives us hope. I don't know whether you noticed, but we sang a chorus earlier, which was, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. It's Mark's testimony, surely. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Mark demonstrates to us the restorative power of grace. But there is a third aspect as well. And that is that we see Barnabas. Sometime I'll have to preach on Barnabas, but today he just gets a bit of a footnote. Barnabas is an agent of grace in this story. Barnabas, the great encourager. He's described as the encourager early in Acts. But he's the one who gets alongside Mark and believes in him. And I think he's instrumental in restoring him. So he's an agent of grace to Mark. And we need people like Barnabas. 
We need people who say to the deserters, who say to the weaklings, who say to the immature, who say to the ones whose track record is blemished. Don't worry. Don't worry. You prepared to try again. What was it that was the issue? Come on. Come with me. Let's work on that. Let's figure out where it went wrong. Let's work on your character. Let's deal with those issues. Why? So you can get back on track again. We need people who are so full of grace towards others that see the potential in people and call it out of them. Even, even if it looks like they've messed up. Even if it looks like failure in that moment. We need people who will say, I can see that God isn't finished with you yet and therefore neither am I. That's what Barnabas did with Mark. And what happens then is that grace takes the Mark who deserted them in Pamphylia and turns it into the Mark who can pen scripture and the Mark who can be useful for service and the Mark who can be the encouragement. God's grace, you see, is absolutely relentless. It will never, never let go of us. So I think from just those couple of sentences just tucked in at the end of the personal greetings in 2 Timothy, I think we get a warning to not love the world, but to look to Jesus. That we get the hope that actually there is always hope to be restored, to be brought back into the things of God. And also the example of Barnabas is incredible for us. Yeah, Father, we do thank you that not a single word within your whole word is wasted. That even just these almost, that we could see them as footnotes to the letter. Actually, there is a richness about their lives that tells us something about what it means to love you more. And uh, so, Father, I pray for us as a church that we will be a church filled with people who take courageous steps, people who step out in faith, whether we feel ready for it or not, but also a church of people whose lives are restored continually by your grace, a church of Barnabases who get alongside and encourage and build up. So, Father, would you fill us with your spirit afresh this morning and empower us for the week ahead, we pray. Amen. Amen.